Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is a creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. I don't know if this is a good segue or not, but speaking of nude, talk to us, Gail, about, you know, dating life <laughs> in the military. Well, you know, all I can say is that my mom... My mom had to arrange my high school prom date. I didn't even ask her. I didn't even care. And I was so focused on going to college. And so when I joined the Navy, well, I tell people I always thought of myself as average-looking, you know, uh, you know, if not ugly, slightly overweight, if not fat. That's why it came as a complete shock when I joined the Navy and discovered I was a sex symbol. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, you know, guys were called. They track you down. They call you up. I saw you eating lunch in the cafeteria. I want to take you to dinner. Wow. I mean, the ratio for men to women has got to be something like 400 to 1. What? And I never in my entire Navy career had problems finding dates. I might have had problems finding what I would call a quality date. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even I remember uh, when I was a commander in the Navy, and I was in the 2nd Aviation Squadron, uh, the EP-3, you know, the aircraft that the Chinese shot down, they called the Navy spy plane. And uh, I was in Greece, and I had a day off. We were staying in a hotel, and I had this uh, uh, balcony off my room overlooking this beautiful bay. And I heard some, and I was reading a trashy romance novel, and I heard some guys on the room or balcony above me. I could tell that they were from my outfit, but I, I didn't know who they were. I didn't recognize their voices. And one of them said, Oh, I sure would like to, mm-mm, Commander Harris. And the other guy said, she's old enough to be your mother. And he said, I don't care, she's hot. <laughs> and that kind of happened, you know, it, it, was, it was just incredible. As I was preparing, you know, myself for retirement, I got to be friendly with a, a bunch of uh, females, one woman minister and, you know, another CEO of her own company, and they were horrified at my attitude toward guys. It was so relaxed. (laughs) And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, and I said, hey, listen, I said, I can't help the environment that I'm in. I never had to worry about dates, and I always, you know, had there were just always all these guys standing around wanting to take you out if you had any time off. Amazing. Well, you know, there was a funny story you, you tell in the book. Uh, talk talk to us about. Uh, I think it was you and your girlfriend that came up with the, uh, the fire hose strategy. Oh yeah, you know when I in my first <laughs> assignment, <laughs> you know, in aviation squadron for for most of my first assignment, you know, there were a number of squadrons like that, each of them with three hundred and sixty something guys. So I, you know, only a handful of women. Were around, so they were always asking out. And so my thought was, 
I didn't, what do I do when the guy drops me off home? I, I felt to be polite, you know, that southern upbringing, that I should at least invite him in, you know, for a cup of coffee or tea or, uh, you know, something like that. But I didn't want them to think that I was inviting them in for anything else. Mm-hmm. So there was this one uh, woman's magazine, like Playgirl, and they had this centerfold that this guy, and, and I, as I always say, a certain part of his anatomy resembled a fire hose. <laughs> so I kept that issue on my coffee table, and so when I'm in the kitchen, the way it always worked, I'm in the kitchen making some coffee or tea. And the guy, normally a guy is not going to look at a magazine like Playgirl uh, because they don't want people to think they're gay. Mm-hmm. So, but since that's the only thing on the coffee table, I was waiting for me, and so the guy would flip it open to the centerfold, and then he'd go... <laughs> That's that's not a normal man. That's crazy. And I look at him. I say, "It isn't." And then they look at their wife. Say, "Well, Gail, it's been a wonderful evening, but I think it's time for me to go home." <laughs> oh, Gail, you're just wrong for that. Y'all are wrong for that. Boy. That's messed up, right there. That's messed up. Broke a lot of hearts, man. With that. <laughs> The tough part was not to giggle, you know, and to keep my straight oh, my face straight when I said that. Uh, that's, that's classic. I love that story. I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> now, a lot of people uh, uh, don't know that, uh, and I don't know if you still do, but you at one point had uh, a major crush on Wesley Snipes. Yes, I did. You know, like since he's gone to jail, I don't know. I was at one of my, I was at one of my hardest points, one of my last assignments, and still going through, you know, the hostile workplace issues and all that. You know, it was a happy ending. But one way that I was able to just cope, because at one point, once again, marginalized and not given anything to do, and I'd gone to see Wesley's Blade movies. Now I know it's not Blade, but that character. So I would just kind of sit there when I had nothing else to do, and my mind would be in romantic scenes with me and Blade. <laughs> and what's really so funny, I did a, a book, a talk and a book signing at the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., and afterwards I'm sitting there signing my books, and who should come up but Wesley Snipes' cousin? Oh, Lord. And she said she just happened to open the book, and she opened it right to that section where I told that story. Oh, hilarious. Nice. <laughs> so I told her, I said, if you ever tell him about this, tell him I'm not crazy. I know he's not Blade. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is totally awesome. Now, what I got the funny story in the book uh, in, in terms of relationships, uh, maybe not so funny, but you were accused of having an affair, but you weren't, but you were flattered anyway. <laughs> Yeah, uh, again, when I was, uh, this was before uh, I got kind of marginalized at Naval Forces Central Command. One of the reasons why was I was able to get, uh, again, we were gearing up uh, for the enforcing the sanctions against Saddam. Mm-hmm. So I was able, uh, because I just knew people and learned how to network, to get a lot of free communications equipment and even a brand new building built for the intelligence staff over in the Bahrain, where the naval headquarters for Central Command are still. Mm-hmm. And uh, people, uh, you know, a lot of people think that intelligence automatically ends up where it needs to go. Not so. There's an extensive communications path and computers that you need to do that. And because uh, computers change so rapidly and upgrade, you got to make sure you stay on top of that. 
So one of uh, my coworkers was jealous, I guess, of what I was doing. And uh, basically while I was in the Middle East help, helping set this up and overseeing everything, uh, he was telling everybody that I was having an affair with somebody in Washington, D.C. I wasn't really that good professionally, but I was having an affair, and that's why I was able to do that. And oh, this wow. is the same, one of the same times that they're, again, trying to throw me out for being overweight. So when I came back, the women on the staff let me know that that was going on, and they said, if you want to bring charges against this man, we will support you. And I was so busy, I just looked at him, I said, well, considering how much the Navy's hassled me for being overweight, I'm flattered that they consider that conceivable. <laughs> I said, even though I'm fat, I guess I'm hot. <laughs> and they started laughing. Oh, so, nice. One of the many lessons I learned that if you do uh, try to make things better and you improve things and you succeed, you're going to come under attack by people who are jealous of your success. Mm-hmm. So instead of them looking at you and saying, hmm, what did Gail do to, you know, to make that happen or she's progressing? They try to bring you down. Well, you say in the book you use a lot of humor, and um, you also realize that your hunches was God's way of communicating with you. you, you uh, are you still in agreement with that? Oh, definitely. Definitely. It it just happens uh, all the time. And what you have to do is have the courage to act on those hunches and what I find works for me, and I'm sure everybody's different, is I had to get away by myself and get quiet. And mm-hmm. one of the ways that I do that is I will get up, no matter how early in the hours and in working intelligence are horrible, no matter how tired I was, I would function best if I got up about an hour early and I'd drink a Diet Coca-Cola <laughs> for that caffeine boost, and then I mm-hmm. would do reading and prayer and be quiet and then that's when I get these hunches amazing Amazing. you know your mind is clear absolutely absolutely yeah I I think that's a ritual most people need to uh, take up Uh, I've been doing it for years It, it, it definitely works it really does and when I find that my life is not working it's because I've gotten lazy and I've not done that Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which happens, I mean, to be sure. physically fit and mentally fit, you know, you have to work at it. It's not something, mm-hmm. you know, you can't ever get lax. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, they go, oh, life's going well, I don't need to pray anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, okay, you know, I had a good run or I can ride my bicycle. I don't need to watch what I eat or exercise mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that, you know, you need to develop uh, a mental fitness program for yourself. And I tell people uh, the spiritual part is very personal. No one can tell you or should tell you what to believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to find some philosophy of life that works for you. And the only thing that I encourage people, I said, let it be positive. Don't let it be negative. You know, like the Boston Red Sox and the curse of the Bambinos. They mm-hmm. believe for years because they traded Beirut to the New York Yankees that Beirut had put a curse on them that they'd never win a World Series. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't believe anything that's negative. You know, find a philosophy of life that is positive, that empowers you. Well, speaking on that, um, let's talk about another section of your, uh, segment rather, of your career uh, and another level of expertise that you 
um, in a way, I guess, unwillingly <laughs> developed, and that was understanding the uh, threat of cyber war. Right. <laughs> so you became an expert in Iraq, and which led you to, uh, because of, uh, at that time, uh, the Internet was going strong and, and uh, had become a world phenomenon uh, and collapsed communications into uh, uh, being instantaneous. Uh, talk to me about that journey of, of, of becoming an expert on cyber war and where we're going with that. Okay. Uh, when I showed up at my uh, last assignment, which was at United States Space Command, which is now North Command, mm-hmm. so the Homeland Defense Command, um, they told me, my new boss took me in and said, I'm going to, that the, the command had been assigned the mission of taking the lead for developing uh, how cyber was going to play as a form of warfare for the department, the entire Department of Defense. And he said, I can't tell you what to do or how to do it. He said, but you need to develop uh, how the intelligence community is going to play. And the problem was that a lot of in the intelligence community didn't believe that this was an intelligence problem. They thought it was something for the communicators. And for the proceeding, the command had had that mission for like one or two years and had not been able to do anything because they couldn't get any, not only the Department of Defense intelligence commands, but also like the National Security Agency, which is under the Department of Defense, but the Washington Area Commands. Mm-hmm. And the, scope of the, the scope of the problem is the Department of Defense has 15,000 networks, 7 million computing devices, and the networks are probed 6 million times a day, and what? then there are thousands of cyber attacks a year. My God! And yeah, it's it's huge. Oh, and God. and so the people in the intelligence community f- felt, you know, a handful felt just as you learn what the bad guys can or cannot do with something like airplanes and ships, mm-hmm. and missiles and bombs, that the intelligence community needed to needed to weigh in and say, what could the bad guy do? Uh, through the stroke of a computer. Mm-hmm, hmm And uh, the uh, current Dep- Deputy Secretary of Defense, William Lynn, said that 100 foreign intelligence organizations are trying to attack into us now. And so, I, as I said, I, I knew nothing about computers. And the problem that I had was not all, you know, my boss told me what he wanted me to do, that I was in charge, but he didn't tell anybody else, including our own staff. So nobody wanted to be bothered with me. Wow. So, so I was fortunate, and that I that uh, my boss got replaced. He was retiring shortly after I got there, by a guy that gave me the support. But even people on the staff of the Space Command didn't want to be bothered with me, and that's a story in itself. Treated me very poorly. Mm-hmm. So I I stayed prayed up as always, and I would uh, go visit uh, commands all over the country to try and find out what was going on. And I found two people who mentored me, one, uh, Captain Terry Roberts, who uh, is since retired and is still working in the world of cyber warfare, and then Commander Bob Gorley, same thing. He has since retired but is still involved in that. And they educated me, you know, gave me suggested reading, and I found that there were three problems 
that we needed to solve right away in terms of the intelligence community support. And the first one was you needed a way to share information when these attacks were happening because a lot of the attacks are criminal mischief, but some of the attacks are, and there's been some in the news lately where some foreign governments have actually stolen intellectual property, you know, military-related, scientific-related. And and the Russians uh, used uh, cyber warfare against Georgia in their 2008 attack. Mm-hmm. So, and China is very active in using uh, cyber as a weapon. So, uh, so, and this is in around 2000. And so, uh, I said we need to be able to exchange information quickly so that when an attack's going on against one part of the Department of Defense, it can be easily shared with other components of the government. And we also needed to know when does the intelligence community report on a cyber incident as opposed to the communicators. And then the third thing was what type of information should the intelligence community collect to learn about the cyber threat? And uh, so one guy on the staff told me, you know, again, I was having a hard time. Nobody wanted to be bothered with me or work with me. And he suggested, he said, Gail, why don't you hold a conference and set up three working groups around these topics and have people who are not from our command so they don't think that uh, Space Command is trying to dictate a solution, head up these things. And that's what I did. And uh, one of the things that I set up was the first day I was there, I told them, I said, because uh, I've been to some of these conferences as I was working on this, and people were just screaming and yelling. There's a great deal of hostility going and nastiness. I said, we're not going to spend this week, like so many other conferences, just complaining about a problem. If you're smart enough to know that an issue is a problem, then in that next breath, I want you to come up with a potential solution. And if mm-hmm. you break that rule, I'm going to take away your bathroom privileges. And I have a <laughs> Marine standing guard on the men's room to make sure that doesn't that you can't use it. <laughs> and then I told them a motivational story which made everybody cry, and uh, it motivated them to work. It wasn't easy, but in one week... We solved problems that people had not been able to solve the preceding two years. And the other thing I did was uh, that was critical for the success, the senior intelligence officer, the guy who had replaced the original guy that gave me the assignment, came over at the end of every day, and they had to give him a presentation to show him where they were. And then at the end of the week, they had to get up and give a, a presentation uh, to, and a solution to the heads of the intelligence community, the heads, not their deputies. Wow. And I I felt by setting that up, those two points daily and at the end of the week, the professional pride would make them come up with a solution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened, and that's how we did it. And one of the guys who was in charge of the group of what type of intelligence reports, he said he's just retired from government work, I guess a couple of years ago, and he told me that it never failed that whenever he went to a conference on cyber after that, they always gave him time to stand up and tell the story. How did we do that in one week when they still weren't able to, to do anything? You know, mm-hmm. some of the problems. Here's an example of a problem in that some 40, at the beginning of this process, some 40% of cyber incidents were not shared with the intelligence community. 
Wow. And I, I went to the FBI and I asked, I said, well, you share the information with the news media because there it is on the news. It has happened. Why won't you share it? There are laws that the intelligence community cannot spy on U.S. citizens. And I told them, I said, could we have a legal ruling that an IP address in and of itself is not a U.S. citizen? I said, mm-hmm. the intelligence community doesn't have to know that Joe Blow, who lives at 417 18th Avenue in Newark, New Jersey, hacked a computer. All we need to know is that an incident has occurred and how widespread was it. We don't mm-hmm. need to know any of the details on on the U.S. citizens, anything like that. And mm-hmm. the reason you need to know that is because we might have a major attacks being attacked against, you know, McGuire Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to know that there are other civilian-related targets in New Jersey also being hacked at the same time. Because what happens is any uh, five-year-old can probably tell us that it might appear that a hack is coming from a computer in New Jersey, but it's actually coming from someplace on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why the intelligence community wanted to track it so that we'd say, oh, this is bigger than we thought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not just U.S. military bases in New Jersey that are being hacked today and brought down. This is also happening in the banks. You know, the power grids have gone down, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we can see a pattern. Know when you're attacked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Remember, so think back to 9-11. Remember the first plane that hit the first tower people thought was an accident? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the second and the third that people realized we were under attack? Right. It's the same principle. Oh, my God. Well, the, the policies and, and, and procedures that you put in place obviously are still in place today, and I would assume that prevented what would be what would be considered a, a cyber 9-11. Well, we don't think enough has been done. You know, it's they still – what they've done right now is uh, they've invented, put together the cyber command where the head of the National Security Agency is double-headed as the commander for that, as well as the National Security Agency. And Strategic Command is the military command that kind of is the primo under that. But the problem is they only have the responsibility to defend the .mil networks. The Department of Homeland Security has the responsibility of providing the cyber defense for .gov. But there is no one organization, and they can call upon the military to help them with with the defense, but there is not one central organization that is responsible for defending all the networks within the United States. Amazing. Wow. So we're still vulnerable. We're still vulnerable, and a lot of people believe, and I'm one of them, if they don't fix this, then uh, we can have a cyber Pearl Harbor. Mm. Then people will say, well, why is this allowed to go on? You know, why didn't they fix this? Well, a lot of times uh, when I first started uh, looking into this, you know, banks were being hacked, for instance. They didn't want that information to get out for fear people would take their money out of the bank and bury it in their backyards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of industry is afraid that the government will put – with, you know, say you got to have this type of cyber defense and it's more money than they want to spend, you know, that type of thing. You get mm-hmm. into those types of arguments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they're right, there is no way uh, currently the, you can tell when a cyber attack has happened, but there is no way currently to, to see one before it happens, to see it coming at you. Mm-hmm. 
there is no one common operational picture for the cyber problem, you know, where you can monitor all the cyber networks to see what's happening. My goodness, that's something that is obviously necessary. You would also think and assume, us being a superpower, that it would already be in place. Well, you just can't get people to agree. Here's one, you know, that's kind of funny in a not-so-funny kind of way. Uh, Estonia uh, was brought down, had a cyber attack, and their networks were brought down. They're one of the most connected uh, networks in the world, you know, brought down their banks and all this kind of stuff. And it was probably Russia. Russia is not publicly said, but it had something to do with some statue, some famous Russian being brought down in Estonia or something. But anyway, Estonia is also a member of NATO. So they went to NATO, hey, we've been attacked. And, you know, NATO, attack against one is the attack against all. Mm -hmm. And the NATO countries are going, oh, what about a cyber attack? What should be our response to that against an attack against one of us? Amazing. Well, you 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 in the book uh, closer to the uh, end of the book, you you gave a uh, a scenario. Uh, uh, I think it was like chapter fourteen on cyber war. You gave a scenario called the denial of service attack, and and what if you were a terrorist? What what would be the optimal um, cyber attack? And I think it was kind of played out in the um, in that uh, Bruce Willis. Uh, uh, movie in the uh, his last uh, uh, Die Hard uh, movie. Uh, what what would happen uh, if there was an orchestrated uh, attack? Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. You know, I just uh, one of my uh, job assignments in the Navy was to be part of the red team at the Naval War College, and you know the war fighters would bring the war plans in, and you put on a bad guy bad guy hat and kind of counter what they want to do. So I mm-hmm. still think like that. And I said, if I were a bad guy and I wanted to bring the United States down using cyber, I would wait until about 6 or 7 o'clock on a Friday, and I would launch attacks, cyber attacks, to bring down the Pentagon. And uh, then I'd also go after Strategic Command, all the major commands that the U.S. maybe could use if they couldn't use stuff in D.C. to communicate to their forces. Mm-hmm. And and then I probably would launch cruise missiles from a ship offshore, and then I would send snipers in and just randomly shoot people. I'd also have hacked into the traffic system to bring down the the stoplights, and you know probably do the airport thing too. Wow! And when you think about the level of confusion, remember that guy turned out he was just upset at his ex-wife, and he was driving cross-country, you know, shooting people, mm-hmm. the D.C. sniper. Mm-hmm. Look what one man and his young assistant did. You know, they basically at times brought that city to a standstill. I was there one time when he had shot somebody, and they shut down traffic, basically trying to figure out who did it and where they were. Hmm. So imagine that scenario. That and is... I choose six or seven on Friday because people, you know, should be coming home from work. Right, right, right. Getting ready to try to go out have a you know dinner or drink Friday night. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. You are amazing. You're absolutely amazing, Gil. You know, uh, your your story is just that what should be put into a movie. I swear to God. Now, you also uh, as it started to get closer to the to the end of your career when you retired, you um, you took a trip to Brazil. I did. Uh, you know, and 
It was with Susan Taylor and Reverend Dr. Barbara King. Yeah, it was at Essence Magazine that had set up the trip to Brazil. And at one point, you know, as I mentioned, when I first showed up at my last command, I was marginalized. And uh, they finally thought, well, maybe if we give her the uh, command had a team that was supposed to be working the cyber problem, and it was headed up by another Navy captain. It's a long story, but basically he kicked me off the team. Mm. After I had solved the problem, he needed the building he was operating in to get it uh, uh, validated as uh, to be able to, to use classified stuff in there, and he hadn't been able to do anything, so I was able to solve the problem for him in a day because I knew how to do that. You know, that was something I had done. And he looked at me, he said, ah, oh, he said, I thank you. He said, you know, we haven't been able to do that. And the very next day I was going into my boss's office and saw him coming out, and he had requested that I be kicked off the team. My goodness. And, and so basically by that time I'd had it. And, you know, I, when I first showed up at, at that command, they hadn't given me an office, a desk, or phone. Like I said, marginalized. And so that was it. I'd had it. I said, you know, I've, I've had incredible things, and I had the new boss who was very supportive. I said, "You don't know me. You know, you don't know if I'm a troublemaker, mm-hmm. and you can't even imagine the crap that I've had to put up with in the course of my career. But for this time, if this situation isn't fixed, I'm going to file discrimination charges against this command." And wow. he told me he would fix the problem, and I had signed up for that trip. And that's uh, again, it was my intuition, and it was a gut check signing up I didn't even really do that much reading on what was going to happen during the trip or who was going to be there mm-hmm. and it turned out to be perfect because it was a spiritual retreat and uh, Ayana Van Zandt was there and uh, every day we had some type of church ceremony there some type of religious ceremony mm-hmm. and the group was small enough that you had interaction with the people it wasn't just seeing them up on the stage or something mm-hmm. and I came back with my spiritual batteries recharged and so the situation was I still was somewhat marginalized but they made that guy back off and he still was a jerk uh, you know for most of my time there but his boss was a three-star Air Force Admiral and it was my birthday and uh, I, like many women, you know, in the high-traffic area, before you leave work, you hit that ladies' room because <laughs> you don't know how long you're going to be in traffic. So I was getting ready to go in the ladies' room. I saw the general, and I, you know, uh, good afternoon, sir. And he said, hi, Gail. And when I came out of the ladies' room, he was waiting. And mm. He had tears in his eyes, tears in his eyes, and he grabbed my hand with both of his, and he apologized for, for that guy. Mm. Wow. There it was again, being pre-prayed. And it prayed was. Up. Wow, really? Yeah, he did. That was the best, one of the best birthday presents I ever had. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I just put up with it, you know, the guy, whenever we have joint meetings, and, you know, I try to avoid him if ever possible because he was so nasty. And I knew my temper. I said, I'm too close to retirement to get in trouble for hitting somebody over the head with a chair. <laughs> <laughs> That's my biggest fault when I was in the military was my temper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why prayer was so important. Um, yeah. No, go was, ahead. Go prayer. ahead. No, that was prayer. Uh, as, as we're winding down, I want to ask you some current questions, and that is, uh, you know, obviously you were uh, 
serving during the time that uh, you know we had gone to uh, war with uh, Iraq uh, in the first and, and the second uh, war, and the war that really never ended, and then of course 9/11. How did you feel about uh, uh, the uh, elimination uh, of Bin Laden? What were you doing at the time that you found out about it? How did you feel about it? I was, uh, as I recall, I think it was like a Sunday night. I was ecstatic, <laughs> absolutely ecstatic. I had you know, called my brother and then my older half-brother. Uh, my older half-brother had been a career in the Army, James, and we just celebrated. And I saw Condoleezza Rice interview fairly recently, and she was talking about that when she was in working in government and the Cold War ended, she knew that it was something to celebrate the achievements just not of the current administration, but of all the administration that had fought that war. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing in that I, I thought that the call that President Obama made was gutsy. I would have recommended bombing the building into obliter- you know, obliteration at, because mm-hmm. that would have been the most likely for success. But to do it the way he did was awesome. And I thought it was a great call, especially for someone like him that had no military background or familiarity mm-hmm. with national security issues before coming into office. And I just thought that the intelligence community, no matter what people said about criticizing it, never gave up. You know, like the incident with the underwear bomber when I said another intelligence failure and we didn't collect the dots. There are, you know, I, I talk with friends who are still working. And at that time, I'm sure it's higher now, every day they had 7,000 terrorist-related dots. Wow. So when you're looking at intelligence, you're not just looking at information that's coming across your desk today. You have to relate it to stuff that happened yesterday, last week, last month, last year, mm-hmm. and and try to project what's going to happen. And that's what these people working Osama bin Laden, they never gave up. And here's a figure I got this for you is uh, talking about the Library of Congress and the amount of information. They said it took two centuries to fill the Library of Congress with 29 million books and periodicals, 2.4 million recordings, 29 million photographs, 2.4 million maps, 29 million manuscripts. Today, the intelligence community generates that much information every five minutes. What? That oh. is the that's the scope of what the intelligence community did, and the environment that they work in to try to find Bin Laden. Well, when you anything. say when you say that, it you know it makes sense because most people would assume, well, how why would the Navy or the Navy SEALs take him down? You would think that it would be the Marines or the Army or or, or, or something you know something you know a sector of that sort. But when you think about it, this was an intelligence strike. It was. It was. It was operations empowered by intelligence. Intelligence alone will not win a war but or conflict or battle, but you cannot win without good intelligence. Yeah. And there's a lot of misinformation about how the intelligence community operates in the media and in the government, uh, for those people who aren't familiar with it. You know, like uh, people say that the before 9-11, the intelligence community didn't share information. That's not true. Mm. Part of the problem is that the intelligence community shares too much information. 
Mm. So much information to sort through. The, you know, it's not tailored. You, you get huge amounts. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the problem. You know, uh, sure, you know, is there some information that's not shared? Of course, because the way the classification system works of information, you don't know what you don't know. But mm -hmm. including the CIA, I mean, every intelligence organization puts out newspaper articles, type, uh, magazine type, book type articles. Just a huge amount of information, mm -hmm. and so that that is part of the problem. So to say that we don't share, we didn't share. They didn't understand the problem, and the relevance of that is if you don't understand how the intelligence community operates, then you cannot come up with recommendations to fix it. If you do, you're going to mess it up. I remember Porter Goss had been head of the House uh, Committee on Intelligence, and he became the mm -hmm. CIA director. He didn't last very long, and I remember seeing statements him saying he had no idea of how complex the task was until he had to focus totally on that. What happens with government officials, if they go at all, they will uh, get some presentation that's at the 40,000-foot level at PowerPoint. And the other thing, and I checked, 85% uh, of the intelligence community resides within the Department of Defense, and the CIA is one of 16 organizations. And most people think, when you think intelligence, they think CIA. Mm -hmm. Nope, it's just one of 16. It's not even the largest. And when wow. you think about the military operations, that's supported by the military intelligence side. And uh, you've got all these young people going through all this information, many of them in their late teens or early 20s, and the public isn't aware of and that's part of what I do is to educate them on that and uh, give a voice to uh, some of the people that, that don't have a voice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the silent heroes, as they call them. They are. Yeah. Um, what is your personal feeling on uh, America now being downgraded to, uh, you know, second grade as opposed to third grade in terms of uh, our, our credit rating and does that, would that, or how would that, if it does, affect our military intelligence, our vulnerabilities uh, in the rest of the world? Well, I personally think that everybody who's in office I would not vote for because Is they're not right? doing – yeah, I would not because they have failed us. They have not done their job. They, the partisan politics has paralyzed our government. And because we are going to have to make some hard decisions on our defense – uh, I don't think those people are competent enough to make the right decisions. Like, for instance, uh, the cost of the war is about 10% of the Department of Defense budget. The largest part of the budget are uh, personnel-related issues, you know, pay or paying the retirement, uh, the people that have retired and stuff like that. And, you know, there are, uh, you know, why do we still have 47,000 troops in Japan Thousands of troops in Germany, in Italy, in Spain, in England that are still there, you know, uh, after World War II and the Cold War. So I don't think that a lot of the people currently in government are smart enough to say, let's look at our entire national security strategy and then design a defense budget that supports that. I don't think that they're smart enough to do it. Wow. Well, they're so paralyzed by partisan politics, they don't even really look at the issues. You know, it's that uh, they can't work together. You know, mm -hmm. 
in the military, they teach you about teamwork. If you're working for somebody and they want to go in a direction that you don't agree with, you tell them why, you give them the reasons. If they still want to go in that direction, as long as it's not illegal, as Colin Powell said, you salute and you give it 110% as if it was your idea. Mm-hmm. We we never, the Congress never should have gotten down to the wire with coming up with a budget. We expect them to look out for our interests, and regardless of the policy of the political party, we expect them to come to some kind of agreement that keeps the country moving forward, and they have failed us. You know, a scary question that I have for you, and that is I think we've, and you and I have talked so many uh, times over the years, and we're, we're obviously mutual friends of Mark Victor Hansen, which is how we met. Right. So that's been many, many years ago. Um, but I remember we were initially when we met, we were talking about scenarios uh, that would happen in terms of tragedy, that after the tragedy, things get better and things get done. Do you feel that we, uh, as, as America, even after 9-11, need to go through another tragedy in order for uh, our government to wake up and, and take note? Or do you think that somehow they'll get it together prior to um, another national uh, tragedy or crisis? I think that uh, we, the public, are going to have to show them our dissatisfaction by voting them out of office. And if there are some people like uh, Senator Olympia Snow from uh, Maine was saying, uh, you know, she this was the worst Congress she'd ever seen. I saw this uh, today in some of the headlines. Mm-hmm. You know, are there some voices of sanity and reason there uh, of people who know that they might not, they might hold views and they might not get 100% of what they want, but before they get in a position to bring the government down, which hurts all of us, that they're willing to work together. Uh, I saw some articles by Vanity Fair, and they were talking about the 1%, you know, about the the weight of the wealth in uh, the United States held by such a small percentage of the population. Mm-hmm. And these are the people in government, are you know, holding office are part of that. Mm-hmm. So th- basically they can't relate to us are our concerns and that the middle class is disappearing and I remember uh, political science 101 I was a political science major in my undergraduate years mm-hmm. and Aristotle said that the most stable governments were those that were dominated by the middle class he said the government that is dominated by the poor the middle class might get some of their goals but not all and the rich get nothing the ones that are dominated by the wealthy, the middle class might get some of their goals, but the bulk of them don't, and the poor don't get it. Whereas that middle class is a you know a stabilizing issue, and I think it's not just the United States. If you take a look, there's a lot of things going on that aren't raising up on the public radar uh, that show discontent. Like for instance, in Israel, I was reading a few days ago that something like a quarter of a million people or something were demonstrating because of the high cost of living. Mm-hmm. You get people living in tents protesting. The thing that's going on in the, in London right now, the riots. Yes. And that's... everybody thinks it's just the Arab Spring, but it seems to me that there are other parts of the world that are also. Uh, and and then they were saying in London, these guys are the uh, 
you know, they're young and unemployed with very few job opportunities, perspective type things. So I think that the public is going to have to, by voting, that seems to get the attention of both political parties, is, listen, guys, uh, <laughs> we put you in there not to shut the government down or to paralyze it, but to to keep us moving forward. You know, we mm-hmm. like being the world's top economy. We like having the world's top military force. You know, we, we like being number one in innovation. And and you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, do you... Do you do you think that the by voting them out of office? Do you think that there's some uh, someone in the Republican Party that is strong enough to to take over, or do you think we're in a situation where we're damned if we do or damned if we don't? I think that there is uh, in either party. I think that there's somebody that has that skill. I think part of the problem is that uh, the problem that I had with President Obama. You know, we've talked offline. Mm-hmm. I think he's a very smart young man, but I don't think he had the right background, a government background for work. And I think ideally the person who runs for president should have spent a significant amount of time in Congress or the Senate. Significant. Mm-hmm. And learning the system. And the reason why I say that is just working in the defense industry, I learned that you had to know how the organization worked in order to get stuff down. That doesn't done, you know, that doesn't mean you have to do anything illegal. But you have to know, like, for instance, in the intelligence community, the organizational structure doesn't matter. I could pick up the phone and call the head of naval intelligence or the head of Air Force intelligence or the head of Army intelligence, and I didn't have to ask mother may I. And, in fact, depending on the issue, I had better call and talk to them or one of their key staff members because when you see something coming down, a request to the intelligence community, particularly in terms of supporting wars of crisis, by the time you get the official task, everything has already been approved in the skids informally. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew that, and I learned that, and that's how I was able to get so many things done, because mm-hmm. I learned that. And if you have not served a significant amount of time in Congress or the Senate, you don't understand how to, how do you get the bills through the committee. Mm-hmm. How do you get bipartisanship? What type of issues can you get bipartisanship? Who in the other party would be willing to work on you, work with you? Could you, if you were able to get some new something built in this guy's state as part of the bill, will he work with you? If you have not done that, then you can't get it done. One way that you can get it done is you surround yourself with a team who are experienced and can do that for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, I think President Obama, considering where he's come from, he's done a good job, but I think he has been hampered by his lack of experience with how the legislature works. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in the previous administ- uh, administration, uh, George Bush, uh, when he ran for his second term, a lot of people were like, okay, we, we've had enough of... of the first uh, four years, we don't want to see another four years. Uh, with the current administration, do you think that there are things that can be done uh, in the second, uh, in a second term that did not get done in the first, or that it's too late? I think you know the media is awful. They're certainly not helping uh, in educating the public, and they're only showing all the negative. I think that President Obama 
if he does a major course correction and and shows leadership and gets people who can help him get past the congressional deadlock and move forward because he's been learning this job and he, I like I said I considering where he came from I, I think he's done a good job mm-hmm. um but I think he still has a ways to go in learning it and and in uh to do it and he he just needs you know obviously his economic team which is you know a lot of people have left that were a part of the original team uh, you know, this is my military background coming at. You're looking at the results. We're not getting the results we need. Something's got to change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're not getting good advice. And I took a whole bunch of economic courses, uh, you know, at the graduate level and undergraduate level. And one of the major lessons I learned was uh, the economy or something has value if people think it does. And that's what the stock market. If people are nervous then they're going to start panicking and selling things, and, you know, that then you get problems. And, you know, that's been happening around the world in the last few days. It started out with the congressional gridlock in the United States, plus the issues that they have with the other economies trying to recover from that worldwide recession. Um, so psychologically, uh, the Obama administration is going to have to give people confidence in the market, the stock market, and the American economy. And he's going to have to take some major steps to see that that happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, uh, I don't understand how we can recover from the economy if you're not going to increase the taxes. Uh, everything that I've read about one of the causes <coughs> of this budget deficit thing Mm-hmm. Goes back to the Bush era tax cuts, and I tell people, I said, "Listen, all I know is the budget was balanced, and there was no debt with Clinton, and now we got it." <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so what what happened to make that happen? Mm-hmm. And the, I really don't think the media has done a, a very good job of educating and informing the public in this area. The media is more concerned <laughs> whether Charlie Sheen gets drunk and how many women he's living with and if Lindsay ha- Lohan having to go back into rehab. You know, a lot of that focus, there is very little uh, news that the media is putting out to educate the public so we can make informed decisions when contacting our representatives. Mm-hmm. And they're also terrible on uh, kind of this, I call it the sleaze factor, the building up hate and discontent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I remember when Rush Limbaugh was saying he wanted, at the beginning of President Obama's term, he wanted him to fail? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize when he was saying that if Obama fails, the nation fails. Right. Right. You're harming yourself by, by saying things like that. And so, absolutely. But the media loved it because, they, you know, they, they like to uh, keep this uh, fight uh, between the two going. The two sides exactly. Yeah. And and I think, you know, you look back, you know, uh, in the military, the president is your boss. And so I was, you know, one lady was coming up to me. I forget where I was in a store or something, you know, was, you know, complaining about the president and whatnot. And I said, well, you know, he's pretty much like any other president. She said, what do you mean? I said, some of the things he does he likes. I like some I don't. I said, mm-hmm. I don't think any one party has, uh, you know, 
can say that you know they they suck. <laughs> right, <laughs> they're always right. terrible. You know, because you can look back that there have been successes, presidential successes from both parties. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, winding down here, you, you, you know that uh, every time we have a, a conversation, it's it's not even a conversation. It's just you know, it's a retreat. Uh, <laughs> 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 you. You are one of the most fascinating, uh, uh, brilliant minds that I, I have been blessed to have in my life over the years. And so every time we have a conversation, it's very, very hard for me to get you off the phone or for me to stop asking questions. And, <laughs> well, I feel the same way about you. And it could be months be- between our talks, and then we pick up right where we left off. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, since I'm having this recorded, I want to get all the good juice in. We're just going to have to have a part one and part two, you know. <laughs> so um, you, you brought up something interesting about the upheaval uh, of the people kind of going into the streets in various different governments and saying, hey, enough is enough, we're, we're, we're done with this, and, and especially to see London, which, you know, is, is, is kind of more like our democracy in a, certain, in a certain sense of diplomacy. And when you see something like that, you realize there's something going on in the world that's not quite correct with government here. And you, you may mention that one of the ways to, to uh, send a signal is, of course, by voting a particular party out of office. And, and I guess the question that I have is, do you think that will have an impact more so than something that Americans have never really done uh, on a regular basis or in a large way uh, is, is hands in the streets? Uh, and protest. Well, see, Phil, Philippe, you're forgetting the civil rights here. Well, no, I'm not forgetting that. I'm just saying that since that time, yeah, uh, you're right. Since that time, we really haven't. Uh, uh, you, you know, there's been some small marches, you know, million, million man marches, things like that. But in terms of like government, there really hasn't been something where we've gone through the streets and said, "This ain't working," and it's harming us as human beings living on this continent. You've got, to, you've got to correct. Why do you think that is? I think because uh, the people that, if they are, if this article was right and all the people in the Senate and the Congress are all part of that 1%, you know, the Americans who are very well off and can't really relate to the rest of us, that's the problem. You know, I know that, uh, I decide, as you know, I've been on the, this quest with my book for a total of 10 years, and I mm-hmm. left a six-figure job in corporate America, you know, the, the bulk of the product project. Well, right now, you know, one of the things that they always say about writers, you need a day job, and now I know what they're talking about because I'm <laughs> on a, a tighter budget. You know, I haven't been on a budget this tight since I was in graduate school, and what that has done was I thought I was pretty much in touch, with, you know, having come from a poor family. Mm-hmm. But I forgot what it was like, you know, to be out and, you know, it's kind of late and say, oh, you know, I'd like to, you know, stop and get something to eat, but I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if I go to, you know, a fast food chain mm-hmm. or, you know, gee, I'm down to my last Coca-Cola, you know, <laughs> can I afford to go buy another six-pack? Mm-hmm. You know, these types of, of decisions. And I think that's part of the problem. It, if people haven't walked in your shoes or, they can't relate to you. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine uh, like recently. You know, remember the uh, Congress went on vacation without initially without taking care of that yes. FAA problem. Yes, yes. 
since most Americans live paycheck to paycheck, especially since this recession thing has gone on and people have had to go through their savings to survive, uh, imagine what it's like. And those people were furloughed without pay. And, and those yeah. congressmen, the people in Washington, can't relate to that. And they lost, ended up losing far more money, uh, you know, through their non-action. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. You know, how can you go to sleep? or go on vacation knowing because you didn't finish your job before you went on vacation that some people might not have money for food. Uh, you know, they got no income coming in and that they were expecting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just the FAA workers, but apparently they had to cancel some construction projects that were going on until that was resolved. So it was a large number of people. You know, what do they do, you know, coming home to their family and saying, I can't afford to buy groceries this week, or calling up their landlords and said, I can't afford to pay rent until this crisis resolved, or calling up the mortgage company and saying, my mortgage payment this month is going to be late because I'm not getting paid. Well, that's fascinating because you know, based upon the laws of, of capitalism, I guess, which is what America is founded on, um, the, situ- the financial situation that we're in, uh, you know, it's 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 not. It, do you feel that it, it's like um, uh, when we had the hole in the ozone, and 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 all the scientists were trying to fix up, figure out how to fix it because oh my God, there's a hole in the ozone, but the ozone self-corrected and nature fixed itself. Do you think that there, over time, that this is kind of that situation where the process uh, and the laws of capitalism will eventually heal themselves over, or do we need to look at as a as a nation a completely new radical system of of economics? I think that it will heal. The one thing I learned from all those economic classes that I took was nobody really understands how the economy works. They have a bunch of theories mm-hmm. that, that they practice, and I think that. What we need and what needs to happen, the public needs to keep the the congressmen and senators' feet to the fire, is why do we have a huge debt? Was it caused by the Bush-era tax breaks, mm-hmm. or was it not? You know, if the war is only 10% of the Department of Defense budget, then how can we say that the wars in Iraq or Afghanistan are totally responsible for this crisis? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If we end and draw down in Iraq and Afghanistan, will this end the financial crisis? We need to answer, answer those types of questions. What do we need to do to bring down the debt? You know, like for us, we know, okay, my credit cards are maxed out a little and blah, blah, blah. You know, like for me, when I found myself as I was going through this process of trying to get, you know, my book published and whatnot, uh, I I just went and, and did some jobs. I was fortunate. I live in a small Colorado town, and uh, some friends of mine own an accounting business, and I went and worked as a receptionist during the tax season. And mm. I remember uh, one young student said, oh, with your background, I wouldn't go work as a receptionist. I said, well, if I want to stay in Durango, Colorado, <laughs> I can't go work for some huge, you know, company, you know, defense company from here and, and get a six-figure salary. So I do what I have to do to make ends meet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I saw nothing wrong with that. And 
that's the type of thing, you know, I knew. I said, okay, uh, I'm going to last just a few months more in this process, so if that means I have to go get a job as a receptionist, there is no dishonor in honorable work. Mm-hmm. At every remember Martin Luther King said if if you're called to be a, a street sweeper, sweep the streets the way that Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's my attitude toward jobs. And so we need legislators that will take an honest look, a bipartisan look at what caused the problem. When did it start to, to get out of control, and what steps do we need to fix it? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Uh, this is the United States of America. The Speaker of the House is the Speaker of the House for both parties, not just mm-hmm. his own. Mm-hmm. That's, a, mm-hmm. that's a position. The President is President of, of all of the United States, not just the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when they approach this problem, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or whether you're a Democrat or whether you're an Independent like me. We have a problem, what caused it, and what do we need to do to fix it? Mm-hmm. And and I don't see that type of spirit happening with the current government that we have unless the public gives them a wake-up call. And by that, it will be to find out, you know, if I were looking at it, I'd say, okay, what are the names of the congressmen and the senators who were most obnoxious and were willing to let the country go into default? Mm-hmm. Without mm-hmm. solving the problem, mm-hmm. and I'd make up a list of those. It's kind of like, you know, like uh, when you're in college, you know, and, and guys who treat women bad. I used to say, well, you know, there should be a big billboard where guys put their <laughs> name on it and have all women say, "We're not going out with you because you treat women bad." Right, right. And, and so, to those people who were willing to take the government in default, saying, "You obviously are not for the country." Mm-mm. Yeah, you and don't have our best interest at heart. Exactly. You know, all the I think all the American public is asking, no matter what their party, is we want you to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They might have some views about how they like to see it fixed, but I don't think there are that many people that would have wanted the government to go into default um, rather than because the two major parties couldn't agree. Yeah, absolutely. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certain aspects of uh, of, of uh, the uh, government that uh, acts or makes us look in the rest of the world as, I hate to say, a third world country. That's exactly right, and very petty, very yeah. petty. So, like I said, I would get a list. What are the list of the people who were willing to let us go into default? Because that's incompetent. If they were running a business, <laughs> and that's the business of government, and you're going to allow it to go into fault, and think what would have happened. You know, there are people like my 84-year-old mom that her Social Security check is her only source of income. Mm-hmm. Now, my mom is much better than I am, and she has a hefty amount of money in a bank, so she could probably manage, you know, maybe for a year or two with no other income. But most people are not so lucky you know, right. I got my military retirement and whatnot. If if I had not gotten paid, I'd be in trouble. And like I said, I don't think if I called up the mortgage company and said, uh, Bank of America, uh, my payment's going to be late because the government is in default and they have not sent me my check. <laughs> tough, Gail. Tough. Yeah. 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 That's but it's you know that's that's very real. 
It is, and that's just one of many things that would have happened if we defaulted. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Well, winding down here, and I know I said that probably about an hour ago. Ladies and gentlemen, listening to this this particular uh, uh, episode of the Philippe Matthews Show, just know that this is this is not one of my regular interviews. It's, it is going to be a, it is a two parter, uh, but we have someone on 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 the phone that that uh, you know I think uh, her message uh, admission needs to be to be heard, and there are many things that need to be addressed. So with that being said, uh, winding down, you wrote this wonderful autobiography. What is the message that you want to send to potential um, uh, young people uh, going into the military, going into the Navy, and in particular, in particular, the uh, uh, sector of in, uh, intelligence? Well, I'd, I'd say is persist, and that's you know like several levels is persist in learning. Never think you know it all. Always keep learning to do the best job possible. You know, focus on the mission. Um, you know, that this is a profession where you don't get much professional personal recognition, but you get great personal satisfaction mm. because of the invaluable contribution you make to the success of the mission. And at a very, very young age professionally, you have an incredible amount of responsibility. And just never give up and focus on the mission. And don't ever think that you can't make a difference. Mm-hmm. Because you can. I remember a young man was getting ready to go over to Afghanistan. And it was during a time when things still weren't going very well. And he was saying, you know, how can I you know, lead my men and women into this environment if I don't think it's being handled properly. Mm-hmm. I said, make suggested changes on how things can be done better. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to, you know, some of the things I said during this conversation. Don't just sit there and talk about a problem. What are some potential solutions? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd say. Well, Captain Gail Harris, thank you very much for sharing that. But more importantly, thank you for sharing your life. You could have just uh, retired and uh, been a a story only to close friends and family, and the rest of the world may have never uh, gotten to meet you and to hear you and to uh, share in your story and to be empowered by it. So I really honestly thank you for taking the courage uh, and the time and all of the sacrifices necessary to write a book, which is not an easy uh, ordeal, especially when you're writing about your life, the good times and the bad times. So I I commend you on that, and I commend you on your continued journey and your continued success and contribution to the world. Well, I thank you, and thank you for honoring me and allowing me to share some of my story and hopefully – the listeners uh, will be empowered. And I always tell people there's nothing special about me. Only my mom thinks I'm special. <laughs> and I just, you know. Well, maybe there's two people, Dan, because I think you're special <laughs> too. So tell your mother that Philippe Matthews thinks I'm special as well, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> I will. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, my dear. I love you, Mike. Thank you so much for sharing time with me. Thank you for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.